Hey, girl bosses, it's Sophia Amoruso here. We have a great show for you today with founder and CEO of Olive and June, Sarah Gibson Tuttle. And before we get to that, I want to tell you a little bit about Zoom. Every meeting on my calendar is a Zoom, they're always video chats. You get a feel for people in a really different way than you would over the phone. And it seems really easy for everybody. So it's like literally every calendar invite that I have a call or meeting with anybody remotely, even our team, we're using Zoom. Zoom Video Communications, the web's best reviewed video conference service, is used by millions to meet one-on-one -on -one or even hundreds at a time. I see people doing webinars on Zoom. People are using it for all kinds of purposes. Zoom video conferencing lets you connect face-to-face -face with anyone across town or around the world with flawless video, clear audio, and instant sharing of files. Um, you can connect through any device too, so desktop, laptop, tablet, smartphone, or conference room system. You can use Zoom Rooms, video conferencing, video webinars, and Zoom Phone puts state-of-the-art tech at your fingertips. If you're running a business, if you're meeting with other people, why are you not using Zoom video communications? Because it's the best. Visit Zoom online and set up a free account today. Try the most affordable and most reliable video communication solution on the market. Meet happy with Zoom. I know this is a podcast and you cannot see my fingernails right now, but they're super duper bright. I, they make me look kind of tan, even though I'm not tan. So I get real bright colors in the summertime. And if you look around the girl boss office, there are some real nails here, like for real, like committed, like patrons of the nail industry. And our guest today is someone who's been part of creating that culture. She actually quit her job after 10 years as an equity sales trader at JP Morgan and Morgan Stanley in New York City, and she did it all to launch her own nail salon. Her name is Sarah Gibson Tuttle, and she's the founder and CEO of Olive in June, which she first opened in Beverly Hills in 2013. Since then, Sarah has opened salons in Santa Monica and Pasadena and has continued expanding her business with a collection of products that make it easy for you to do your own mani at home. We've really, we've kind of taken a turn into products and into democratizing the salon manicure. And I think for her, when I first told her, she was like, wait, you're not going to have 100 salons? And I was like, I think there's a bigger way for us to make women, like we can make more women happy if we teach them how to do their own nails versus we have nail salons in, you know, fancy areas around the country. And so it, it's changed a bit. Welcome to Girl Boss Radio, the show for and about ambitious women, exploring the wins, losses, and insights learned on the winding road to success. On today's show, Sarah and I talk about how she lived off her savings while trying to get her business up and running and why she believes the at-home nail industry can grow to $10 billion. We also talk about the opportunities that are still available when you enter a crowded market and why educating your customers can make for great content. Here's our conversation. Sarah, welcome to Girl Boss Radio. Thank you. Thanks for joining. We've been, I feel like this is a long time coming. A lot of back and forth emails. A lot of people have introduced us and somehow we haven't spent probably enough time together. So it'll be nice to really dig into your really interesting career. I'm excited to be best friends. Yeah. Here we go. Here we go. Okay. 
So I start every episode with the same question for everybody because we all have a start and you've had such an incredible career, but you know, there's the, like everybody has a, has like a first job. So, <laughs> and they can be glamorous or unglamorous. We've had people who like, yes, worked retail, but it was like in the Hamptons, which is okay if that's what you did. Um, but then others, Maria Menounos, you know, scrubbed the floors of nightclubs, right? And it's, yeah, it's just so interesting. What was your first job? My first job was at McDonald's, and it was not working in the Hamptons. I moved high school in the middle um, at my junior year, and I, my parents kind of, I think I was going through this, like teenage angst, but my parents were like, we're not just going to give you money to go do things. You're going to have to figure out a way to make money. And I'd worked at like, you know, as a camp counselor and like little things like that. But um, so I had to get a job outside of school to have more money because I, you know, wanted new friends and like wanted an actual life. Um, I didn't have a built-in best friend network anymore. And so I got a job at McDonald's and I worked there for probably three or four months. My, um, at some point, I started interviewing and I found a job at a kids clothing store, which is where I worked for the next two years of, of high school. And But my McDonald's experience was really informative because they have a lot of structure and rules and you can't like I remember we had taken like sharpies and like given ourselves like you know fake tattoos and they were like you can't have that (laughs) you have to be clean like they were just they had rules and so that was the first time that someone kind of told me you couldn't you know in that kind of way where self-expression I guess was not at that point probably it's different now but um, and I also gave Simon Rex do you remember Simon Rex oh yeah loved him they were filming um, what was that thing that they filmed for MTV where they like did like Winter House or whatever? Yeah, like the they had the beach house. Yes. They had I went to the beach house in San Diego once. Oh, I'm so jealous. The guy from Blink One of the one of the Blink One Eighty Two guys is there. Oh, that's so fun. I thought it was kind of cool. It was probably Travis. I think it was. Yeah, um, that's amazing. First name. <laughs> yeah. <It's about, laughs> well, it just feels like Travis would be the one who would have gone, um, and. But I, I like love Simon Rex and they were filming The Winter House and I gave him free fries and my boss definitely caught me and was like, we don't give out free food. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And he was like, I get it, but this is the one and only. And my boss kind of hooked me up and didn't fire me for that, but he should have. So what did you learn? Because you <laughs> have an establishment now, you have multiple locations. It's not McDonald's. But what have you taken from that experience that you've applied into what you're doing now? Is there anything... What I loved about, I think I learned that there is structure and there is a reason why you why there are rules in, the play, in place. Obviously, my parents are pretty strict, so it wasn't like I had no rules growing up. But I learned just thinking about you're serving food, so you shouldn't have marker up and down your arm, but also like presentation to the client and like how we are in client service. And that's the job, if that's the job that you choose, that you have to understand what the client would want from the person on the other side of the desk. So fast forward... And you're working as an equity sales trader at J.P. Morgan and Morgan Stanley in New York City. How did that happen, and what 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 drew you to that in the early years of your career? So after after high school, I went to Colgate, and every summer before you know before then, my next year of college, I did internships. So I did internships at Teen Vogue or Teen Vogue. Oh my God, Teen People. By the way, when there was a Teen People, um, similar to Teen Vogue, but it was Teen People. And then I did two summers on the floor of the Stock Exchange, New York Stock Exchange. And so, when I started working in finance, I really liked the pace of it. I liked the hustle. I liked the way 
it was a little bit unemotional um, because it was so numbers driven and analytical. And I, and I like that because I'm a pretty emotional person. And so I was able to work in an environment that felt pretty cut and dry. Like it was either a good price where you were selling the stock or it wasn't. Um, I guess you could say that's like somewhat somewhat of an emotional reaction, but it it really was very factual, fact driven. And so I started interviewing at, at those firms that were on the floor um, and interviewing for jobs that weren't on the floor of the stock exchange because a lot of the, my mentors or people that I work for down there said it's better to be on a trading desk than it is to be on the stock exchange, which was great advice because, um, you know, five years into being on the trading desk, I think the stock exchange was, was half the size of what it had been. So it was great advice. And my dad worked in finance for a long time. And so I think I was drawn to it, generally speaking. Um, but once I worked there, I was like, this is really good for a really good balance for my personality. So can you just, for those of us who don't know, tell us what an equity sales trader does? Sure. So an equity sales trader is someone, if you think of all those like trading places and all those movies, um, Wall Street, where they're sitting at a trading desk, you're sitting on one of those desks that's like a very long desk and you're sitting like one after another. My job was to cover hedge funds and mutual funds and basically be their liaison between the trader at the hedge fund and the trader on our desk. So essentially, if they wanted to buy it and sell, let's just say 100,000 shares of Citigroup, they would call us and I would take that order and I would work with my trader on Morgan Stanley and execute that order. It's a little more complicated than that, but that's basically what it is. It's it's we are we are a salesperson or a sales trader for trading orders. Um, and there's reasons why hedge funds would sell would trade with you or not. It's a lot relationship driven, and it's also a lot driven on resources that you're giving, whether it be your you're allocating meetings to for like head of Citigroup management to their portfolio managers, but essentially you're trading stocks. And you're you're shepherding those orders. It's really customer service driven, like client service. It's it's all about you know it's like that base that base that I had from McDonald's basically. <laughs> like it's like that on steroids, right? It's it's very client service and making and making sure your clients happy and that they that they think that you are taking care of them. What, how would you describe good service? So this is this is kind of an interesting question because I find that. The newer generation below me that works at Olive and June sometimes doesn't totally agree with this. So I say it because I th- and I and I'm such an empowered person. Like I I truly believe that you like no one should say anything to someone that they would be they feel disrespected by. But so this might be controversial. But to me, client services the client is almost always right. Like I rarely will unless a client has totally stepped over the line. Obviously. But I'll, but I will try to maneuver and manipulate any conversation into a and end in a positive. Like I just don't. That's how I grew up. Like the client was. I've had people scream at me. I've had people yell at me. Now if like someone was to like physically touch me, like obviously there's lines. Beat down. Yeah. <laughs> but when someone kind of comes at me like verbally to me, I'm like just diffuse the situation. Like I'm not like I feel wronged. I'm more like okay, how do I make this? I've had someone say that like that someone on my team was racist and I've turned that conversation into a positive by the time the person left. And I don't think it's right that they called someone on my team racist. First of all, they're fucking wrong. They're not racist. But it's also was more so like this is an emotional reaction is not real. Like you don't she doesn't really think that she's just pissed at her at what she perceives to be bad service. And so how do I maneuver this conversation? The person she was saying that about luckily feels similarly to me. And so she understood why I did what I did. But I do think that there are times where I have to explain that. And I think that 
um, younger generations, I think, don't feel as as strongly that the client is always right. I think it's about making people feel good. And I think it's about understanding that you pick this certain profession. Like if you order a bottle of nail polish on our website and you, you perceive it to be bad in any way, we replace it or refund you. Like carp on, no problem. Because to me, I don't see the upside in trying to to make that person feel bad or wrong. Like they're not wrong. If they perceive that, that's it. Fix an, it. An angry customer, I think, spreads like a, someone happy um, spreads the word for your business like, you know, certain number of times, but someone unhappy, I think it's like even more viral and especially, yes. and customer service has always been really important, but in the age of all this transparency and people being able to express their feelings yeah. um, online on places like Yelp, it's just, it's incredibly important to make sure that people are having a great experience. I agree with you. Um, our, our team will sometimes be like, well, that person's being a bully. And I just don't go there with my thought process. I'm like, fix it, diffuse it, make the person feel good, give them something for free. Like, to me, it's like, just make it better. Especially when women want, show up to feel beautiful. You know, if someone bought a dress from Nasty Gal and they were like, oh my God, I hate it, or you ruined my bachelorette party, it's just like, you don't want someone to feel like that, even if they're wrong. It's just like you're providing this emotion. People are attached really emotionally to how we look and how we look can often affect how we feel. And that's okay. I don't think that's necessarily shallow. It just means, you know, we have expectations when we walk into a place and sometimes they're unrealistic, but it kind of doesn't matter at the end of the day when you're on the client services side. I completely agree. So fast forward again. <laughs> and I want to get into this because we're talking about nails <laughs> and I want people to know why you left JP Morgan and Morgan <laughs> Stanley to found a nail a nail salon, a nail startup that's become much, much more than that. What prompted you to leave that job and move into a totally new part of your career? I really at some point I got to the place where I was like, I love client service, but I don't actually love markets like I don't like it's so funny you're like I don't even know how to talk about this like I didn't I barely wanted to talk about it like I never was bringing it up to my friends like I was never that excited about it but obviously it was it was I was saving a lot of money it was it was fun I like my clients and so I stayed in it for a long time um, I think I also probably had a little bit of expectation from my family my father had been in finance for a long time and and I was successful at it so I didn't want to necessarily leave and all my friends at that point were in finance so um, but I wanted something different. I really wanted, I wanted to move to LA. I was uh, I was going through a divorce with my first husband. I was like, I want something new. I want something different. I started interviewing out here and getting my hair blown out at Dry Bar and was like, this place is amazing. This world is amazing. How do I move here? Um, and then I had the idea, you know, it was like, I started dating my now husband and I was, I was still interviewing and I had this idea. I was like, I should do the Dry Bar for nails. Like this just makes sense. I love this place. Um, and then I love nails. I've always had loved having my nails done. Um, it's always made me feel like an empowered person, even if I, I could do whatever with my hair and like throw on a little bit of makeup and I'm fine. But like my nails, I've always wanted them to be done. Also, because my dad hates nails being done. So I think it was definitely like a nephew to him. And so um, thanks, Dad, as he listens to this podcast. Mm -hmm. I'm sure he listens to all my podcasts. Inspiration. So. <laughs> so so then I had the idea to do a dry bar for nails. And, and then it, it started started like it was in my head and I started talking to people about it and the response from women was so strong and so I quit. It was kind of crazy. I moved out here and 10 months later opened Olive in June and I used my own savings to do it and I, I had no idea what to expect but 
I just had this feeling. I was like, I have to do this. This is what I'm meant to be doing next. Did you take a pay cut to do that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I didn't. I took I took a 100% pay cut because I went from making money to just living off my savings. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't talk about that. This has come up more and more recently that to change careers, whether you're starting your own business or moving from one industry to another to learn, you know, the 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 ropes, a lot of us do have to take pay cuts. And I think, you know, it's easy to think that it's a really linear path that each time we, as we get older, we make more money. And it's like when we want to do something new, sometimes we have to take that risk. Yeah. If we can afford it, not everyone can. So, so you funded the business on your savings, you opened your first location. What is Olive in June? Can you just describe to, you know, what the first location is like and then, you know, how you've expanded and what you're doing now? Yeah. So Olive Engine started as your new type of neighborhood nail salon. The idea was that I love, I mean, I love brick and mortar. I love when you walk into a familiar place that is in your neighborhood that you absolutely love. And I wanted to create that in nails. Um, it is, it's named after my grandmother's. So Olive is my great grandmother and June is my grandmother. I wanted it to feel as f- familiar as like your grandmother's house, but walk in and it looks like your stylish best friend's house. So it's why we we hired Brady Cunningham of 10 over 6 and now of Wall for Apricots to design the space. Um, our brand director, Crystal Mears, is amazing. She pushed me on every design decision we made. She was like, try this, try this, try this. And it really is, it, it started as a nail salon that was hopefully everything you wanted in a nail salon. 500 bottles of polish on the wall, all like organized by by tone versus like oh here's the red here's the yellow here it just feels like a mishmash it like was very well organized wonderful manicurists who chat with you we take your preferences before you sit down everything is sterilized like it's a beautiful space you feel like this is as one woman called it it's the cheers of of nail salons um and that's what it started as and i really wanted i i was very driven by creating the driver for nails and and ally being one of my closest friends now it's so funny because We've really we've kind of taken a turn into products and into democratizing the salon manicure. And I think for her, when I first told her, she was like, "Wait, you're not going to have a hundred salons." And I was like, "I think there's a bigger way for us to make women like we can make more women happy if we teach them how to do their own nails versus we have nail salons in, you know, fancy areas around the country." And so it's it's changed a bit. We'll get back to the conversation with Sarah in just a minute, but first I want to tell you a little bit about Ring. So just like neighborhood watch groups with the Neighbors app, you receive real-time crime and safety alerts from your neighbors. It helps you stay informed about what's going on in your neighborhood, and it's completely free. You don't even need to own a Ring device. I downloaded the Neighbors apps at my home base and neighborhood, and just like that, I've been ready to get alerts from my neighbors Speaking of alerts, here's what my neighbors have been talking about lately in the app. There's been some creepers, there's been some loud noises, there's been some parties. And a neighbor commented that it was actually fireworks, which is super dangerous in most LA neighborhoods. One of my neighbor's dogs ran away, but then a neighbor found the dog a few blocks over and was able to return him safe and sound because of Ring. And the best thing is all the posts and comments are anonymous, so you don't have to be worried about who it is that's hearing about what's going on. So if you want to see what's going on in your neighborhood, text GIRLBOSS to the number 555-888 to download the Neighbors app today. That's GIRLBOSS to 555-888. Make your neighborhood safer today with the Neighbors app by Ring. Now let's get back to my chat with Sarah. 
So you've said that you want to take the at-home nail market from $1 billion to $10 billion. That's ambitious. Um, why is that particular market so ripe for growth, in your opinion? So the nail industry in the United States is a $10 billion industry within a $90 billion beauty industry. And so nails already is a small piece of the pie. Nails at home nails is $1 billion out of that 10. So it's only 10%. If you look at hair, which is 60% at home, and makeup, which is 99% at home, nails has like has an outsized service footprint. And so for me, I was like, they're hot. It, maybe it's just that women can't do their own nails. Like maybe there's just not a thing. Or maybe it's that we don't have the right tools. We don't have the right products. We don't have the right education. So we we did a bunch of surveys. And what we realized is that women in LA and New York specifically, but also like San Francisco and a couple other big cities are doing their nails or getting them done 40 times a year. And then women outside of those cities, outside of the coast, essentially are getting their nails done or doing their own nails six times a year. And it's really like three times for special occasions, three times on their own. They're buying the products, but then they're stopping. And they're like, I can't paint with my non-dominant hand. And I don't really know what to buy. Like, I don't know what buffer. Like, what do I do with my cuticles? And so for me, I looked at it like, wait, so you know, a couple of brands dominate the the salons. And so that's what the market is. But if we actually... And I understand why manicurists wouldn't teach you how to paint your nails, but there's not enough manicurists with the demand in the United States. And also, not everyone can afford weekly manicures at a salon, especially outside of cities where there's a ton of manicurists, right? So that the prices double. So I was basically like, if I can teach everyone in the world how to paint their own nails, then women can feel this happiness all the time. And so that's, I just was like, I have to do this. Like this, because I just know growing up, my parents were pretty strict. My dad didn't let me get my nails done. But I would didn't even if my dad had let me, I didn't have the money. And so I look and I, I live in the suburbs of New York. It's not like I, I lived in a nice town, but I but I there was no way I would be able to get it done. And I thought to myself, if I had learned then, now I would just like while I'm watching Netflix, I would just be like painting my nails. But I didn't because I wasn't taught and I didn't do it and I didn't know about it and like no one tried to give me anything good. Um because really, the the bottle of nail polish is a professional product for a manicurist with her dominant hand. It's really hard. The, the handle's small. I can't paint my nails without like covering my entire fingertip. <laughs> and and it's like it's like if someone had just given you the products and the education, you'd be like, oh, I can. And you would try. Yeah. And that's the idea: is like get people into the category. So tell me about your products. You're developing products. Are they la- launched yet? Um, you know, how would we use them? So you're talking about at-home nail care, making it easier for us to do our own nails. Like, how are you thinking about actually innovating in that area? So we launched the Poppy, which is a patented universal polish bottle handle. Um, Essentially, you can take the Poppy and put it on any nail polish bottle and make it ergonomic. So the idea is to stabilize your non-dominant hand. We work with industrial designers and and on that product, and we're basically like, this is what I want to mimic the the other hand with my like my right hand with my left hand, and I want it to be able to fit on top of any nail polish bottle, so that if you have Essie at home or OPI at home. If you just have the poppy, you can, because that might be your favorite shade, I want you to be able to paint. So we launched that plus um, six polishes in the spring. And we launched the first ever seven free long lasting formula. The idea was, we, we made it in Korea, but the idea was like, I want something that's, that's, um, free of the of the chemicals that women are traditionally like walking in our salon and don't want in their nail polish, but I also want it to be long lasting because the chipping is the most annoying thing with polish. Um, and so we launched that. It sold that sold out now three times. Um, we launched the Manny kits, which are studio boxes, um, 
and they're basically like everything you need to do your nails at home. You can like put your phone in there. You can you can film yourself, but it also has like the right buffer that we use in the salon, the same file we use in the salon. Like it has this great cuticle serum. And so the idea is like everything you need to do your nails at home. And then and then we've and then we have other launches. So we have other things coming. We have like a four year pipeline. For us, it's all about innovation and being innovative with everything we put out. I don't want to just put out something because it has the olive and June seal on it. For me, it's about really, like to your point, like constantly thinking of innovation. Do you have investors today? We do. What has that process been like, <laughs> you know, raising money? I think it's difficult until it's not. Like I think when you, I think it's hard to, ra- I've raised money twice. So I've raised a friends and family after we had a salon. Um, and once I found, and we, so we had, we had actual data and, and financials to raise on. And that was once I found the right pocket of people, because I didn't know enough people to raise enough money myself. And so once I found the pocket of people that ended up raising, it was pretty quick. But then I raised the second time pre-product. And so that was hard because you have the salon business, but then you're raising money on a product that you've, I'm like, no, no, it's a universal polished bottle handle. It's going to be amazing. And people are like, sure, but you don't have the product. And so that's really hard. It ended up being oversubscribed. I think honestly, because this similar thing happened, we like hit a pocket of people that really understood the business. So I think, but raising money is a full-time job. And so what I've done now for our next round, which will be in the future, and we're not sure when it'll be, but I've started meeting people in between my meetings now versus try to like, I'm going to fundraise for three months. Yeah, it's important. And that's what I've been doing is just kind of nurturing those relationships and they become friends, right? Potential investors become friends. And, you know, most of all, they can give you great advice. And the way you can vet them is to see how helpful they are because you're letting somebody invest in your company. I think it's easy to position things as like, please give me your money. I'm so lucky to have your money, which is, you know, people are giving us, you know, a lot of money and taking bets on us. But at the same time, they have the privilege of participating in, you know, what could be a really great return for them and vetting those people you know, understanding like how helpful, you know, they could be is really important. So I had a conversation with an investor recently who asked me like, what are you looking for in an investor? And I was like, God, how do you answer this question other than saying somebody helpful? You know, what else other answer is there? I guess someone that could help us strategize an IPO or, you know, for our stage company, it's nothing like that yet. Um, but that's, you know, I think people can give really tactical advice who've been there and who have, you know, often operational experience. I would agree with you wholeheartedly. I think it took me, I I think I walked into those meetings being scared and being like, give me your money, like, like mm-hmm. very, very nervous. I think I've turned the corner now knowing where the, with the, especially the product line, where all of, what Olive and June can do and the kind of momentum we've had um, and the kind of movement we're starting that's really empowers you to do your own nails. Uh, I also think the best investors do become your friends and I think they become sounding boards. And I think you, if you, if someone seems off when you're raising walk, like run away from them because they can only become total nightmares when they're in your round. Um, So I, I totally agree with you. And I think operational experience, and I think also like kind of knowing your cap table and saying like, okay, I need one person who's super helpful on wholesale and one person who's super helpful on marketing. And I want one person who's super helpful on whatever but then the rest i can fill in with people that just want to be part of you know the financial side of this yeah so cap table if you don't know is basically the list of people who who have equity in your company yeah 
which we have a lot of really, really helpful people on our cap table. Um, I had one, really like one and a half funds on our cap table at Nasty Gal. And, you know, while I really loved working with them, we didn't have the, you know, variety or diversity of expertise and experience to weigh in on what we were doing. And we didn't have enough eyes on the company that weren't like on our board mm-hmm. because board members have a different kind of perspective than someone who might be, uh, you know, have a small angel check in and, you know, especially has kind of operation operational experience because a lot of investors are just investors through and through and they've never run a company before. So, you know, I, I guess to our listeners, if you are looking for investors or advisors, just find people who do have a variety of experience that you can tap for their network, for recruiting, for their expertise. Asking advice along the way is just so, 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 so important. You've entered a really crowded space. Um, and I think everything's crowded at this point, um, especially just brands or uh, people are becoming better. There's almost, you know, like you have a brand in a box, you know, um, 10 years ago, it was like you had to have, and I'm not saying this is at all, you know, what you're doing, but it was like having a brand didn't mean hiring an agency to, you know, make you a cute brand. It was like, <laughs> you had to like figure it out yourself. And I mean, that's amazing. There's so many incredible brands starting now, but it, there's, it's, it is a lot more crowded, especially in the direct to consumer space. How, have, how do you think about standing out among, you know, the competition and entering a crowded space. It's interesting. I think that's so true. I I keep hearing the same agencies that people hire to quote create their brand and I it's so funny because when we first started, which was 6 years ago next Wednesday, but um but a year before that we were planning it, no one was talking about brand and Crystal, our brand director, had had written a, you know, she ran Daily Candy LA for 7 years, so she knew what was resonating with the consumer. And so she told me I had this like, quote, logo that she was like, this is a garbage logo. And she said it in this very nice way. This isn't really strong enough. Um, but she was like, you have to, it has to be you. Like, and she said to me very specifically, because I love Drybar so much. She's like, Drybar is Allie. Like, it screams Allie. It's Allie. Like, when you meet Allie, you're going to be like, oh, I understand why Drybar is exactly the way it is. And she's like, Olive and June has to be Sarah. And so, like, what does that look like? Okay, maybe it's, you know, I'm I'm kind of like half, I feel like I'm half pretty pretty strong, pretty bold, pretty like fierce. And the other half of me is like, I I really like getting my nails done. Like I really like doing my nails. Like I like I like makeup. And so it's a, it's definitely a softer side. And so that's why the logo is like a block kind of strong logo. And then we use all very neutral and and softer colors because that really embodied who we wanted to be and who I was. Um, you know, it's an interesting question on the crowded space. At-home nails is kind of nowhere. So in some ways, it, it's like it's this space that's nowhere. It's not that crowded. Yeah. Right. And so that's what, but nails generally, I think, I think is just dominated by two or three companies that um, own most of the market and the rest of it's kind of like, it's a commodity. It's a paint. Um, so the way that we try, I mean, we, and so we built this brand on the community experience. And so because the community was already, was already built when we launched product we've had great success in being ourselves and i think as we go into this space i think education and content is going to be i know everyone talks about content but like for us that's education and it's about actually like really teaching people and making it fun and like fun collaborations and expression of self um that's going to keep us being olive in june I truly believe that in order for this this market to go from, like you said before, one to ten billion or even higher, it's going to be a couple of really cool brands. Olive and June will very much hopefully be included in that, and we will take this category and blow it up. Um, 
And we just have a very unique perspective because of what we've done in Salon. So I think if we keep being ourselves and we keep pushing ourselves to be innovative, then we are different and we do stand out. And hopefully that really resonates with the consumer. But I think education and that and what we deliver digitally is going to be really, really important for us. You'll hear more from Sarah in just a moment, but first I want to tell you a little bit about Vistaprint. I have used Vistaprint for my business over the years. Our first business cards at Girlboss were from Vistaprint. We used to put postcards in every package that were like a really cute thank you with photography on them. Used Vistaprint. Vistaprint is so incredible if you have a small business. It's important to feel professional and polished and prepared when it counts. For just 10 bucks, Vistaprint gives you 500 personalized cards with exactly the look you want. And because you can choose the colors, fonts, designs, and images, because I know you know how to design, you can create something as unique and compelling as your business. So to make a card, you just plug in your information and logo into hundreds of fresh designs tailored to your type of company, or you can upload your original layout, your own original layout. You pick the paper stock style and quantity that's right for you, and you can even upgrade to a unique touch like rounded corners. Ours had rounded corners. Choose your delivery speed, order and receive your cards in just as few as three days. And if you need more reasons to choose Vistaprint, you can feel good knowing that Vistaprint uses only carefully selected inks and responsibly sourced paper stocks. Your satisfaction is 100% guaranteed or your money back, they will make it right for you. Vistaprint wants you to be able to own the now in any situation, which is why our listeners will get 500 high-quality custom business cards starting at just $9.99. Just go to vistaprint.com slash girlboss. Go to vistaprint.com slash girlboss to get 500 custom business cards and own the now. Offer valid now through September 8th. That's vistaprint.com slash girlboss. Now let's get back to my chat with Sarah Gibson-Tuttle. It's easy to have a brand by yourself and say, like, I'm the brand. I get it. Everything that you design, you're approving. Everything that every, you know, all the messaging. Maybe you're in the salon all day. You've scaled. And scaling that brand vision, scaling customer service can be challenging because you can't be everywhere at once. What have you learned in the process of building teams and scaling your vision? Um, I've learned that people leave when you micromanage them. Um, very, I've learned that very acutely. Um, I've learned that I'm not good at everything and that I should really try to hire people that are really good, that I think are brilliant at what they're doing. Our, between Crystal, our brand director, our um, C- CFO, our GM, like I think they're all literally bonkers brilliant. Like Everything they come out with, I am like in awe of, and I let them do their jobs. It's you know, we just hired a, a director of content community and like that'll probably be my biggest struggle because I ran social for six years. And so I've been but I also think I'm not the best at that job. So I try to let people do their jobs and I try to let it let some things go. Um, I try to do I try to work out more because honestly, it like releases for me because it's really hard to not control it. But at some point, it has to be a living, breathing thing on its own versus just like I'm running, like you said, like I'm running front desk and the experience is perfect. If you become a bottleneck, you know, as your company scales, people feel like they, especially senior people, feel like they can't, they don't have autonomy, they can't make decisions. They come from companies where their expertise is valued and um, they're able to make recommendations and actually implement them. And it can be really hard as a founder um, 
to let that go and watch people sometimes make decisions that aren't the decisions that you would make, but be like, okay, I don't completely agree with this, but you know what? You know more than me. And I find myself proven wrong all the time by the really smart people that work here at Girl Boss. And often like there's just a total consensus. They're like, no, you know, collectively. <laughs> it actually actually happens quite a bit. And I'm like, wait, my instincts are wrong. And I'm like, God, my instincts, I just don't even know if I trust them at all anymore. Um, but it's it's a lesson that often a lot of us have to learn the hard way. It's really hard to start out as an, as an entrepreneur or a leader, just knowing that or knowing how to do that because we are so attached to what we're doing and it is really emotional. It's a representation of who we are and our friends are watching and our brand's important. Um, so it's, I think yeah. you care more than anyone because you, because you own it, right? So you own the biggest piece of it. It's yours. You started it. I didn't have, I didn't, I mean, I think of Crystal as my co-founder, but I, I guess I don't have a technical co-founder. So, but I have to say, like, I know I'm not, I'm great at interacting with my kind of management level team. I've not been as great interacting with like mid to junior level solely because I have micromanaged and I have pushed and I've, I've expected them to be me, which is totally unfair. So when I hired our GM, we structured it really so that she is everything internal and I'm, I am a lot of external and I still get a ton of interaction, but I don't, I'm not managing the day to day. And the team has like, it, it, you can just see that it's, they're flourishing just the same way that our CFO and she was our CFO CEO did with our salons. And so I'm, I try to really be good at what I'm good at. And, but you're to your point, like it can be very, very hard. And I've learned a lot of lessons and, and hopefully everyone who's left is listening to this and knows that I'm very sorry. Um, same. Yeah. <laughs> same. I hope you listen to my podcast. <laughs> if you quit. By the way, they definitely, yeah, exactly. they see my name on it. They're like, I'm good. Probably not. They're like, wow, I really hope she's grown. Let me listen. <laughs> Let me listen in. I hope they've grown too. Yeah. We yeah. Hopefully we all have. Jeez. So there's a couple more questions okay. that I ask everybody that comes on Girl Boss Radio. And we have this thing called Girl Boss Moments, which is really the time in your most recent history that you were proud of something. And it could be personal. It could be professional, um, an accomplishment, or maybe not everything is about accomplishments. It could just be something you did for yourself or someone else or seeing a friend or taking a trip. What was your most recent Girl Boss Moment? moment um i we i have two the and they're both olive and june related just because i think when i think of girl boss like to me i think of i think of those work accomplishments and also we've come to this point after such a long six years we sold out in two weeks at target with our nail art stickers and i was like through the moon about it because you just don't know when you go to the rest of the country like if anyone even knows who you are or if they care or if they're even going to be excited um and so it was really really exciting when that happened because it just like really validated that we had something that we could scale congratulations thank you it was I really want some. fun oh mail me some yes i will okay i'll yeah. give you a girl boss switch okay perfect and then the other is that the nail polish we did a mani marathon and someone went 20 days with the nail polish not chipping and for me like by the way not guaranteed results but for me I just like I hate chipping more than anything and so we created that nail polish for 18 months and it was a total shit show as I'm sure everyone can imagine like just the manufacturer wanted to fire us like it was just hard and so it's really exciting for women to just be loving that the formula like it's just really exciting to me so those are two big moments it's been a big year for us that's amazing thanks I think it's, you know, sometimes, and I don't want to, I don't want to like interject too much, but 
the vendors you hire, the manufacturers you hire, often they're they're executors, right? And they can push back, but they need people like you to help them innovate and to push them to innovate. In the end, they're really proud of the work that they've done, but in the process, it can be really, really challenging. Um, yeah, and I was like, I don't want to sell millions of bottles of this. Like, not that we're there yet, but I, but in my future, like, I don't want to just sell it because it's got an olive and June on it. And people are like, I like that color. Like, I want it to be like that, but I, I want it to be that it works. Mm-hmm. Like, what else are we doing if we're not creating products or things or experiences that people are just obsessed with? That's that's the joy of life. So, and one more question. Okay. So one thing that we think about a lot here at Girl Boss is this concept of success, which is kind of like a weird, it's like a cool word. It's like you know we all want to be successful, but success doesn't necessarily mean making a lot of money or even being a founder. Not everybody, you know, it's so sexy to start a company. Uh, it's so sexy to make a lot of money, but that's not that's not everything. It can be personal. Right? Success can mean raising a family. I know you have a family. What does success mean to you right now? I think success right now, I'm going to answer right now and in the future because I think it's, I think they're really different. Success right now means carving out a bit of time with my daughter while still grinding as hard as I can about at Olive in June because I actually love both so much. I also love my husband too. He never really gets a shout out, but I love my family and I love Olive in June so deeply, both of them in such different ways. And so being able to do both, which I'm able to do because I have an amazing husband and because we have an amazing nanny and because we have like all of the, the my, my in-laws are incredible. And so it's like, I want both, you know, and I really want to try to do and be super present with her for even if it's an hour a day, but also just like, I want to create a business that in five years, like 10 years, like women are talking to each other and, and they're like, should we go to the nail salon? And the girl's like, no, I just did it myself. Like, I want that for people. And Let's so binge watch and and Olive and June together. Exactly. Like instead of a book club, we're doing like, we're doing Manny Club. Like I just want that. And so I want both. And so I think success for me will be able to honestly be able to continue to do that and create that and change the industry. So, and be hopefully a great mom. At some point I'd like to have another child. So got to figure that out in the plan. But uh, yeah, I think it's just, I'm very, very happy in my life right now. I think I'm very blessed and grateful that I'm able to be a founder. And then I have a team around me that is so supportive and so good to me and, and works so hard. And so if I can continue to do this in any sort of capacity, I'll be a very lucky person. So where can we find you? Where can we find Olive in June? Uh, olivejune.com or on, on Instagram at, at Olive and June. I answer a lot of the DMs slash all of them right now. Hopefully in the future I won't answer all, all of them. All of them. All of them. <laughs> all of you. Yeah, so olivejune.com, at Olive and June, and my personal is at Gibson Tuttle. Thank I just you. want to drop my name, Sarah, at any time. Thank you so much, Sarah, <laughs> for joining me on Girl Boss Radio. It's been Thanks. a pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, everybody, that's our show. I want to thank Sarah for joining us on Girl Boss Radio. And if you haven't checked them out already, I want to remind you we have some exciting new podcasts in the works at Girl Boss. So make sure you follow us on Instagram and our newsletter for updates on all of them. And as always, if you like what we're doing on the show, please rate and review Girl Boss Radio on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Share the podcast with a few friends and let them know you want them to listen to Girl Boss Radio. I'll talk to you next time.